Well, good evening. Uh, we'll be continuing our study in, in the book of Daniel. Uh, this is uh, one of the most uh, challenging and debated chapters in the book of Daniel. I'll try to do it, do it some justice. Um, look, I can't uh, cover absolutely everything there is to cover on it tonight. I'll try and do my best, uh, but if you have questions or concerns, come find me after the service and we can talk about that. Uh, the book of Daniel, uh, chapter 9, verses uh, 20 to 27. This is God's Word. While I, Daniel, was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God. While I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring an everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Know, therefore, and understand that from the going out of the word to to restore and build Jerusalem, To the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seventy weeks. Then for sixty-two weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the sixty-two weeks an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week he shall put an end to the sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Well, this is God's word. Let's uh, ask for his help in understanding it. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we uh, thank you that you do not leave us, your children, in the dark, that you speak into the darkness, just as you spoke at the creation of the world, you said, let there be light. And so, Lord, we pray that you would take your word and illuminate our hearts, and that you might use this word to give us clarity and understanding, that we might live uh, to uh, trust in Christ and to serve him with our hearts and lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, um, back in 2010, I decided I was going to take on this uh, incredible challenge. I was going to learn Spanish. And I bought a bunch of Spanish books. I started watching a bunch of Spanish uh, movies. I even did a year of Spanish courses in university. I thought I was doing pretty well. And and I learned something about Spanish. a lot of words in Spanish are similar to English words. For example, el, the car is el carro, and moment is el momento. 
and problem is el problema. So it's easy. You can learn Spanish and you know a few words. And so I started doing that. And uh, I started making up words. So the truck became la troca. And when I was embarrassed, I would say, I am estoy embarazada. But if you know Spanish, uh, the word embarazada means I am pregnant. <laughs> so I went around telling people that I was embarazada, very, very embarazada. And as I learned the language, I had probably a hundred moments like this where, where I, I would misunderstand the, the Spanish language, and I'd misapply the Spanish language, and I misunderstood the context. And just as I misunderstood uh, the context of the Spanish language, sometimes we come to the Bible and we misunderstand it, and we get confused by its message. We come to, especially in the Old Testament, we come to these passages where we, we uh, read the passage and we think to ourselves, what did I just read? What does that mean? And, and so we need to study the Bible together. We need to unpack it. We need to explain it. This chapter in the Bible is probably on the list of one of the most top 20 most debated chapters in Scripture. People have devoted their entire lives to unpacking and understanding da Daniel chapter 9. And I think sometimes we make this passage more confusing than it needs to be. Look at verse 22 with me. Just open up your Bibles. What's the first thing that Daniel says in verse 22? He says, I come to give you, Daniel, insight and understanding. In other words, don't be confused by what I am about to share with you. Now, people sometimes come to this, uh, this passage and they try and do math with the Bible. They try and do Bible Sudoku with this chapter, and they try and use the numbers in the book of Daniel to calculate dates and, and times, but I don't think that's the intent of the author here. I think what we need to do is we need to come to this text and just try to understand the big idea here and the big picture, because God is not a God of confusion. Um, we get confused. God recognized that Daniel might get confused, but he sent Daniel an angel, a messenger, who would uh, help him understand the vision that was sent to him. In the New Testament, G Jesus recognized that we get confused. You know, sometimes we open the Bible and we read a passage and we feel lost, and it's for that reason that Christ sent us the Holy Spirit. The Spirit's job is to illuminate, to shine uh, the truth of God's Word into our hearts, to clarify, to take God's revealed truth and to help us understand it. Jesus said in John 16, that when the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide us into all truth. I remember when I was maybe six, seven years old, my cousin came to stay with us. Uh, I was kicked out of the room. He got my bed, I got the floor. And I woke up in the night, I was disoriented, I didn't have a light. And so I started fumbling my way around the house, trying to find the light. And somehow, I don't know how I did this, but I ended up stepping on his face in the middle of the night, looking for a light. And sometimes we approach the Bible, and, and it seems like we uh, are walking in the dark, but what we need is, as we read the Bible, we need God's Spirit working to illuminate it to us. Uh, and it is God's Spirit that works in the hearts and minds of believers, making difficult things clear. And so when we read the Bible, we should, we should pray and ask God for clarity, 
and for understanding that the Spirit of God might take these difficult passages and might make them clear to us. The Puritan Richard Sibbs once said, there must be spirit in me as there is spirit in the Scriptures before I can see anything. Now there are uh, three things that God wanted uh, Daniel to understand in this chapter, and those three things are important for us to understand as well this evening. The first is our sinfulness. The second is God's graciousness. And the third is the Christian's confidence. So we'll look at our sinfulness and we'll look at verses at, uh, 20 to 23, Daniel's prayer of confession, then God's graciousness uh, in verse 24, and then God, the Christian's confidence in verses 25 to 27. Let's start with uh, our sinfulness. And let's look at verse 20. It's about 3 or 4 p.m. It's the time of the evening sacrifice. Daniel is on his knees in prayer. This, we know that this was Daniel's habit. Morning and evening when he woke, before the sun went down, when the sun rose, he would uh, go to his, his chamber and pray to God. Back in chapter 6, we know that he did this up to three times daily. And as often as he ate his daily bread, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, he would speak to God in prayer. Um, and that's a good habit. I don't think we have to necessarily do that ourselves three times a day, but I think as often as we eat our bread, our daily bread, we should come to God in prayer. And as he prays, he openly admits his sins. He owns them. Uh, look at verse 20. It says that he is found confessing his sins and the sins of his people. Have a look also at the way that Daniel prays in uh, in verses 1 to 19. We have this long prayer of confession here. Daniel is a man who prays like a convict, like a criminal, like a man who knows that he is really messed up in life. Look at the words he uses to describe his sinfulness. Wrong, verse 5. Wicked. Rebel. Look at verse 6. Uh, not listening. Verse 7. Shame. Treachery, verse 10, disobedience. Now, most people hear these words and they think, well, that sounds a bit extreme, don't you think? And sometimes we uh, like to minimize our sin. Instead of saying that we've sinned, we say, oh, I've made a mistake. Or instead of saying that we are wicked, we say, well, I've been a bit careless lately. Or instead of saying that we are rebels, we say, well, my judgment has lapsed. You know, as I was pre preparing for the sermon, I came across a prayer. I think it was a satirical prayer. I hope that it was a satirical prayer. Someone had written this prayer, and it says this. Our Father in heaven, we have occasionally had some minor errors of judgment, but they're really not our fault. Due to forces beyond our control, we have sometimes failed to act in according with, accordance with our best interests. Under the circumstances, we did the best that we could, we are glad to say that we're doing okay, perhaps even slightly above average. O oh Lord, be your own sweet self with those who know they are not perfect. Grant us that we may continue to live a harmless and happy life and keep our self-respect. And we ask all these things to the unlimited tolerances which, you have, which we have the right to expect from you. Now, none of us would dare pray something like that, I hope. But I do think that that prayer, hopefully it was satirical, uh, reflects 
I hope, I think that prayer reflects the common attitudes that people have towards sin. An attitude that, that minimizes and downplays the severity of sin. An attitude that doesn't recognize that, that when we sin against God, we, we, uh, we commit an, an act of cosmic treason. It was Paul Tripp who said, sin plays havoc with our spiritual vision. And although we are able to see the sins of others with such specificity and clarity, we tend to be blind to our own sin. And the most dangerous aspect of this already dangerous condition is that spiritually blind people tend to be blind to their own blindness. Now, even as Christians, we, we acknowledge that we are sinners. But we still like to think that we are little sinners, not big sinners. We sin once or twice a day here or there. And then we compare ourselves to others. We evaluate our sins against the sins of our friends and our neighbors. And sometimes we conclude that, that, that our sins are not as bad as their sins. And so we minimize sin. And we don't fully understand the weight of our sin. I remember uh, years ago with such clarity the moment uh, that um, I smashed my mom's coffee table. The glass just shattered. And at the same moment, my mom walked in. And, and I, knew that, I knew that I'd done something wrong, but I didn't fully appreciate, as a five-year-old, I didn't fully appreciate the value of that coffee table. I didn't really appreciate or understand that this was an antique coffee table that was given to her from her grandmother and that it couldn't possibly be replaced. And I think sometimes this is how we think of sin. We, we know that sin is bad, but we don't fully appreciate how bad it really is. Many of us understand, uh, understand that we are sinners, but we don't really uh, feel the weight of our sinfulness. Now, reflecting on this, Martin Lloyd-Jones once said, you will never make yourself feel like you're a sinner because there is a mechanism in you as a result of your sin that will always be defending yourself against every accusation. We are all on really good terms with ourselves. And we can always put up a good case for ourselves. Even if we try to make ourselves feel that we are sinners, we will never do it. There's only one way to know that you are a sinner. And that is to have some form of, some dim form or glimmering conception of God. The only way that we, can, we will fully understand the weight of our sin or the gravity of our sin is to know who God is and to see Him in all His glory and goodness and holiness and to understand our sin according to His Word and against the backdrop of His law. You know, I shared this illustration a few years ago when I first came to Australia. Um, there was one night, one of the first nights that we were here, I was sitting outside. Uh, it was a nice warm evening. And out of the corner of my eyes, I saw in the darkness a little black spider. I thought, oh, there are spiders in Australia? I'm kind of freaky. And uh, so I took my flashlight, and I shined it on the wall, and all of a sudden, all the eyes of every spider lit up. There were like a hundred of them. And, um, and I share that illustration, because that's kind of what the Scriptures do. The Scriptures are like a torch. You know, we might know that we've sinned here or there, but when we take the Scriptures and illuminate our lives with them, 
we see, we see sin for what it really is. That it's far more pervasive and far more destructive than we really think it is. Here in Daniel 9, Daniel is on his knees confessing. And he's come to understand his sinfulness before God. He's, he's come to understand that the reason the Jewish people are living in exile is because they have committed horrible atrocities against God, that they have uh, year after year, generation after generation, offered up sacrifices to false idols, broken His law again and again and again. And as Daniel is in the midst of prayer, and he's confessing his sin, and he's owning his sin, and he recognizes his sin for what it really is, look at what happens here in your Bibles, verses 21 and 22. An angel visits him. A supernatural being while he's praying. How freaky is that? You wouldn't want to see some kind of supernatural being standing behind you while you're praying. Um, but this angel wasn't a terrifying angel. It was, his name was Gabriel. It was the same angel that visited, the, visited uh, Mary uh, with the, the message of the Christ child. And his name means God is great. And so God visits Daniel with a great message. His message, and his message uh, is this, that, he, that God is a gracious God. That's my second point here. There are two things that Gabriel tells Daniel. First, he tells Daniel that Daniel is greatly loved. And then second, that Daniel is greatly forgiven. Look at verse 23. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell you a message from God that you, Daniel, are greatly loved. Daniel has just confessed how wicked and rebellious he is. And the first thing that God does is come to him and say, Daniel, I love you. Not because Daniel was a good person. Not because Daniel was so brave when he went into the lion's den. Not because there was anything within Daniel that was worthy of God's love. God doesn't look at Daniel and say, Daniel, I will love you if. Throughout chapter 9, Daniel confesses that he has done nothing to earn God's love. And in spite of his failure, and the failure of God's people, even though they have sinned so grievously that God has booted them out of the promised land, in spite of this all, God sends an angel to tell Daniel, I love you. You know, um, I remember the first time that I locked eyes with my two kids at, on the day that they were born. And in that moment, before they had done anything good or bad, uh, I knew that I was committed to loving them for the rest of their lives. And in a more perfect way, God loves us. And not like a parent loves in a greater way than that. His love is an eternal love. He, he loves His children not at the moment of their birth, but the book of Ephesians says, in eternity past. He predestined us to be adopted as sons and daughters of the living God before the foundation of the world. And I want to be clear about something. God doesn't um, love us the way we are, because the way we are is sinners but He loves us in spite of who we are. His love has an agenda. 
And in this agenda, he is committed to changing us, to making us, uh, to be conformed to the image of his son, Jesus Christ. And our culture hates this message because our culture wants to believe in a God that affirms you the way you are and accepts your rebellion and, ex- and even celebrates you in your sin. But the Bible teaches a God who loves us and he loves us so much that he sends his only son to die to forgive our sins and to change our lives for our good and for his glory. And Gabriel reminds Daniel here, you are greatly loved. And then he goes on to tell Daniel that he is greatly forgiven. Look at verse 24. The next thing that Gabriel says to Daniel is that 70 cycles of seven are decreed. Okay. Now, in the Bible, numbers mean something. In our culture, numbers mean something to you, don't they? What does December 25th mean to you? Christmas. Who's putting up their Christmas tree already? No one. Good. What does September 11th mean to us? Well, we, we all know what September 11th means. Every Canadian knows the number 99. The number 99 is Wayne Gretzky's number, the greatest hockey player that ever lived. Now, your Bible says that 70 weeks of seven are decreed. The original text says that 70 sevens, 70 cycles of seven are decreed. And that number symbolizes forgiveness. Um, In Leviticus 25, God gives uh, the nation of Israel a calendar. And the Jewish calendar had cycles, kind of like our calendar has cycles. Uh, Every four years, we have a leap year. In the Jewish calendar, after seven cycles of seven, there would be a celebration called the year of Jubilee. And on that year, the whole country would have one big public holiday. We just get one extra public holiday this week. They got a whole year off. And it was a special year. And on that year, all debts would be forgiven. In today's world, it would be like having your hex debt forgiven or your mortgage forgiven or um, your car loan paid off. And on this year, during this celebration, all slaves would be freed and the entire country would be encouraged to rest and there would be no farming and everyone would just live off of stockpiled food and just enjoy a whole year of rest. This year would be called the year of Jubilee and the holiday would be a celebration of God's forgiveness. So when Jesus says in Matthew 18, you remember what Jesus said in Matthew 18? He said that when you forgive, you should forgive how many times? 70 times seven. He's talking about the year of Jubilee. He's saying that you should forgive your enemy like it's the year of Jubilee. As if it were a year-long celebration of forgiveness. And that's what this number means here in in verse 24. He says 70 weeks of seven. Uh, 70 cycles of seven are decreed. And what he's saying there is that this year of jubilee is decreed or forgiveness is decreed. It fits the context. Daniel has just been confessing his sin and the angel Gabriel comes to him and says jubilee has been decreed for you. 
And Gabriel emphasizes that, that um, sin will one day be wiped away completely. Three times he says this in verse 24. Look at verse 24 with me. He says it three times in three different ways. Uh, transgression will be finished. Uh, sin will be put to an end. And iniquity will be atoned for. Transgression will be finished. Sin will be put to an end. And iniquity will be atoned for. You know, when I was a little kid, uh, we used to have chalkboards. And your name, if you were, you know, did something bad in class, your name would uh, be written up in the right-hand corner of the chalkboard, where my name usually was. And um, at the end of the school year, the names would be wiped off. And that's it. No more detention ever. You're free to go enjoy your summer holiday. And that's kind of the symbolism of the year of Jubilee. All debts were forgiven. Uh, slaves were freed. Everyone uh, was given uh, a fresh start. This is the significance of the year of Jubilee. One day, Jesus would come. We'll talk about this more in our third point. And he would, he would deliver a message, and that message would be the message of Jubilee that everyone's sins would be forgiven. That's the beauty of the Christian faith. You know, our culture says you've messed up and you get canceled. But Jesus says, I will cancel your sin and I will set you free. Now, there's an incredible picture of this in Matthew, Matthew's gospel. Just uh, if you have your Bible with you, there's a Bible under your seat. Um, Matthew chapter 27, verse 16. And it says this. And I'll just paraphrase what's happening here. We're introduced to a man named Barabbas. He's a criminal. And Barabbas is scheduled to die on a cross. The Romans would stretch his arms out, pierce his hands with nails. And Barabbas on the weekend of Passover, 33 AD, was meant to be crucified on a cross next to two thieves, one on his left, one on his right. And the governor, Pilate, on that day, took Barabbas, the criminal, and he took Jesus, the king, and he presented both of them to the mob, to the crowd that was calling for Jesus' crucifixion. And Pilate asked the crowd... Who should live? And what did the crowd shout? Barabbas. And then Pilate asked the crowd, well, what should we do with Jesus? And the crowd shouted, crucify him. Barabbas went free. And Jesus was punished on the cross between two thieves. You and I have something common with Barabbas. We have a record of sin. And Christ has come to take your place and to set you free. He is crucified. You get to go free. Your record of sin, pardoned, expunged, deleted. The power of sin over your life has been cut off. And even though we struggle with sin, even though we fall into sin and stumble 
sin is no longer our master. We are free from sin's control. And so I think that, that's the significance of this, this year of Jubilee. Um, God makes a way for us to be free. To be free from, from our debt of sin. And that leads me to a third and final point. The Christian's confidence. Now, it has been said before that if our greatest need had been information, God would have sent us an educator. And if our greatest need had been technology, God would have sent us a scientist. And if our greatest need had been money, God would have sent us an economist. And if our greatest need had been pleasure, God would have sent us an entertainer. But our greatest need is forgiveness. And so God has sent us a Savior. In the Old Testament, God sometimes spoke through prophets like Daniel. But He also spoke through signs and symbols. And these signs and symbols pointed the Old Testament people of God towards a Savior. You know, we have signs and symbols in our society. In Canada, on November 11th, everyone wears a poppy over their heart. And we do that because it symbolizes the sacrifice of our fallen veterans and soldiers. In the AFL, we all know that the magpie symbolizes Collingwood Football Club. My condolences to you after last night's game. And as Christians, we have a symbol, the cross. We put it on around our necks. We put it on our steeples. We put it behind the pulpit. And that symbol symbolizes forgiveness. In the Old Testament, they had a symbol, many symbols. One of the symbols that they had was a temple. And the temple and its sacrifices symbolized forgiveness. Now, if you know, um, if you know the history of Israel... This symbol of forgiveness, the temple, had been laid to waste by the Babylonian army. Uh, and you could imagine, you know, just to try and help us understand how, how shocking that would have been for the Old Testament people, you could imagine if the Victorian government paid our church a visit and, and took a wrecking ball to our church and to the cross. Uh, we'd be mortified. And I can't imagine how mortified the Israelites would have been as their temple, the symbol of their forgiveness, the symbol of their redemption, was ransacked and burnt to the ground by the Babylonian army. And what we see here in verse 20 is Daniel wants his symbol of forgiveness back. What's he praying for? He's saying, I'm presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill. I want the holy hill back. I want this symbol of my redemption, the symbol of my forgiveness back. I want, a Christian would say, I want the cross back. Uh, They were saying, I want the temple back. So Daniel's praying that the temple would be restored. And then the angel Gabriel comes to him with this amazing news. Look at verse 25. And the angel Gabriel says to Daniel, you're going to get your temple back. The entire city of Jerusalem will be rebuilt, verse 25. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of this word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of anointed one, the prince, there shall be seven weeks. And then, and then later it says um, that the entire city uh, will, be, uh, will be rebuilt 
verse 25, I believe. The city walls, the city streets, even the trench surrounding the city. At Jerusalem, Daniel's going to get Jerusalem back. And he does. And in 516 BC, 516 years before Christ is born, uh, the temple is rebuilt, just as the angel Gabriel said. And for more than 500 years, that temple would sit on the holy hill, the highest point of Jerusalem, and it would tower over the city, and it would remind God's people again of God's uh, forgiving grace. Now, in just a, over a month, uh, a crew from our church will go to Jerusalem. Like I said last week, I didn't get the invite. I have to stay back and preach. But Gerald will be taking a crew of people to Jerusalem. It's, I don't know if it's too late for you to go. And they will go th- uh, take a tour through the streets of Jerusalem. But they won't see the temple. Because the temple isn't standing there anymore. It was destroyed again. Once in, once in uh, 568, I believe, 586, and the other time in 70 AD. Gabriel tells Daniel that after the temple is rebuilt, it's going to be destroyed again. Look at verse 27. Verse 27 tells us this, and I'm going to try and unpack. The, the verse here is difficult to understand, but I'm going to try and unpack what it's saying here. Verse 27, after, um, after a strong covenant is made with many for one week, and after half of the week, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. I take that to mean that Christ will come and put an end to sacrifice and offering. And then it says this, and after that, and on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Okay, that's a tricky verse there. I'm going to try and unpack that here. It says, On the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate. The original text says, an abominable wing or an abominable bird will swoop into the city and desolate it, lay it to waste, You know what that word abominable means? In Canada, we have the abominable snowman. It literally means a detestable snowman. Something that is ugly and terrifying. And this picture here in verse 27 isn't an abominable snowman. It's an abominable abominable bird. In my mind, it's a magpie. A detestable bird who swoops in and, and brings destruction to Jerusalem. Now, this is one interpretation. There's multiple interpretations of this verse. I'm just giving you one of them. We are told in verse 27 that a metaphorical set of wings, a bird, is going to swoop in and destroy the city. And this symbolic bird is Titus Caesar, the emperor of Rome, who sent his troops into Jerusalem in 70 AD. And they ransacked the city, and they left the temple, in a heap of rubble. And so what he's prophesying here is the utter and total desolation of Jerusalem. And like I said, if you take a trip to Jerusalem today, you will see that there's only just a few stones left 
on the western wall. Um, and so the temple, we're told, would be destroyed again. But that's not the only temple that we're told will be destroyed. See, in the year, in the year 33 AD, another temple was destroyed. Except this temple was a different kind of temple. It was a different kind of structure, not a stone structure. This temple was Jesus himself. In John 2, verse 19, Jesus says, I am the temple. My body is the temple. And when this temple is destroyed, I will raise it up again in three days. See, the structure that stood for thousands of years served as God's symbol of forgiveness would one day be destroyed and be replaced by a better sign and symbol of God's forgiveness, the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ himself would replace the Old Testament temple. So here Daniel is praying for the temple. He wants to see the temple rebuilt and he wants to see it recommissioned. But Gabriel comes to him with a message. And that message is that there will be a more glorious temple, a better temple, will appear in Jerusalem, and his name is Jesus Christ. And we're told here that this temple, this anointed one, a.k.a. Jesus Christ, look at verse 24, what's he going to do? He is going to atone for sins. It says Jesus is going to, if we put Jesus' name into the text, Jesus is going to finish the transgression, Jesus is going to put an end to sin, Jesus is going to atone for iniquity. This passage is speaking of the promised Messiah. And, and then we're told in verse 20, 25 that God will anoint him. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks, then 62 weeks. So he's going to be anointed or set apart as a king. And his arrival will usher in a celebration. Remember earlier in the sermon, I was talking about the year of Jubilee. And these, these numbers, you have the, the 70 weeks or the 70 cycles of seven. It's after 70 cycles of seven that he will arrive. And he will usher in a, an eternal year of Jubilee where God's people will be released from their debt to God and forgiven for their sins. But in order for all this to happen, look at verse 26. This king who we know as King Jesus must be cut off. That's what verse 26 says. And we know that Jesus was cut off. Jesus was cut off from his friends, from his family. Uh, he was cut off from his followers. He was cut off from the land of the living. He was cut off from his Father in heaven. Jesus himself on the cross said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you cut me off? And we're told in verse 27 that he would make a strong covenant with many. And we know that Jesus, and I'm sorry I have to kind of rush through this. This is all really good stuff, and I wish I could say more about it. But we know that Jesus, through his death and through his blood, made a better covenant with us, his people. A better covenant than, than the covenant that was made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
And we're told here that he shall make a strong covenant. Just prior to the celebration of Jubilee. And he will put an end to what? Look at your Bibles. What's he going to put an end to? Sacrifices and offerings. That's why we're here at Donville and not in Jerusalem, sacrificing lambs. That's why we're worshiping together tonight. Because Christ has put an end to blood sacrifices. And so, the last thing I want to do is confuse you. The last thing I want to do is enter into all these different debates about this chapter. So I want to just kind of recap and clarify um, this message to make it simple and clear. 500 years before Jesus is born, the angel Gabriel preaches the gospel to Daniel. The good news. Yet Daniel was praying for a temple so that he could offer sacrifices, so that he could know that his sins were forgiven by God. And the angel Gabriel appears to Daniel and says, Daniel, you don't need a temple. In fact, the temple you are praying for, the temple that I am going to give to you, that temple is going to be destroyed again. But what I have for you is something so much better, a Savior. And He has seen you, and He has heard you, and one day He will come to forgive you. You're looking to Jerusalem, but what do you really need? You need Jesus. And we need Jesus Christ. We need that, that pardon of our sin, the forgiveness that He offers. We don't look to a temple or to a building or to any kind of religious rituals to find that forgiveness. Standing um, on Collins Street, is one of the most sought-after pieces of real estate in the city. You could call it the Presbyterian Temple. And it's the headquarters of our denomination. And it's a beautiful building. People love that building. It's a useful building. At the end of the day, it's about as permanent as a sandcastle on the beach. Our salvation does not rest upon buildings. It does not rest upon material wealth. It doesn't rest upon self-improvement. Our salvation doesn't rest upon religious activities. And what the angel Gabriel is doing here in this chapter is he's turning Daniel's attention away from the temple, away from a building, away from a city. As important as that building was, and that city was, and he's turning him towards what? Towards the cross. And that's where we need to be facing this week. So why don't we um, come uh, bow our heads before Christ and ask for his help uh, this week as we look to him in faith. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for this section of Daniel. We recognize that there are some difficult things to understand but we know that the, that the overarching message is clear. That we need to look away from ourselves, to look away from material things, and to look to Christ. Lord, help us to do that this week. 
Lord, would you use um, your, this sermon and these words to um, comfort those who are struggling, who are afflicted, and that you would challenge those who are too comfortable. And so we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.